0: All doing okay? You're doing well? And those of you who came camping with us are doing well too? Uh, for those of you who don't know, a bunch of us guys were just camping over the last two days out at Horse Thief Lake in the rain, and uh, somehow we still managed to get sunburned, but that's just, uh, <laughs> that's just the way it works, I guess. <laughs> Me too, Josh. My neck hurts. I don't know. It was raining and we got sunburned. Well, hey, today we are continuing on in our series on the book of Daniel as we reach Daniel chapter 7, and there's going to be a bit of uh, explanation and a bit of throat clearing here as we get started in Daniel chapter 7, because chapter 7 of the book of Daniel is where all of a sudden everything changes. Uh, As we enter the last half of the book, things are going to take a dramatic turn. The book will no longer focus on Daniel and his friends and all the fun familiar children's stories that we have heard for years you know the fiery furnace Daniel in the lion's den that's all behind us we already covered that and now the second half of the book is going to focus on telling the dreams and the visions that Daniel received as an old man and here's the thing they're going to get a little weird they're going to be a little strange and otherworldly And so, as we get started on Daniel chapter 7, I just want to start by acknowledging the fact that all of you, regardless of what's going on in your life, all of the good things, the the things that you're celebrating, things you're excited about, um, or the bad things, the things that are hard to carry, the things that you are just dragging through in this door, all of you chose to wake up today, uh, some before 9 a.m., some at 6 a.m. in the pouring rain after doing a 14 hour hike. And you chose to come here this morning to hear the dreams of a man who died 2,500 years ago. (laughs) And I chose to come and talk about that this morning. And I think we have to just start by acknowledging how sort of strange that really is. But I also have to commend you for the fact that you're doing that, (laughs) that you are willing to come here to listen to the strange dreams of a dead man, because I think that your faithfulness... And coming here to hear this is going to be rewarded. And I think that this dream, as, as weird as it seems and as odd as it is for us to put all this effort into doing this, um, I think it's going to be rewarded because I truly think that this is Jesus speaking to us today. Um, in this strange way, but nonetheless, this is how Jesus is speaking to us. Now, as I said, uh, it's going to be a little different than the previous chapters, and chapter 7 in particular is even different from the next few chapters. Uh, The first thing to note about chapter 7 is that it is in a completely different language than any other chapter in the rest of the book. Daniel 7 is in Aramaic. After this, and we get on to 8 through 12, it's all going to be in Hebrew. We'll stick with English, but if we were in the original languages, for some reason Daniel 7 is just this outlier written in Aramaic here. And also, the book is no longer really going to follow chronological order. Uh, We're going to see in verse 1 that this took place during er, during Belshazzar's reign. And so, if we were to organize chronologically, this shouldn't be chapter 7. It would be somewhere between 4 and 5. But nonetheless, here it is. It's also going to be a very different genre than we've been reading so far. Um, So chapters 1 through 6 are what are typically called court tales. They're like really folksy, one-sided accounts of historical events that happened. You know, the fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel not eating the food. Instead, it switches to what's called apocalyptic literature, right? Apocalyptic literature. And it switches to this because instead of just being historical accounts, these are going to be Daniel just trying to explain and interpret these visions that God gave him. Now, who has heard of apocalyptic literature before? Or at least you've kind of heard of it in relation to the Bible. Uh, I think, for one, we probably have some work to do when it comes to approaching apocalyptic literature, because if you've ever maybe, you know, stayed up till 2 a.m. watching YouTube videos of some guy, typically with, like, a southern accent and a suit that's, like, three sizes too big, like chart out all these timelines of world events or of what's happening in this country or that, or if you've ever read any of the left-behind books, or frankly, any movie with Kirk Cameron in it, I'm just going to say we have some obstacles to overcome. (laughs) We have probably some things to unlearn as we approach this very complicated genre of apocalyptic literature. Because the point of apocalyptic literature one aspect of it is to predict the future, but that's the really fun part. So, that's the part that we tend to focus on the most. But, apocalyptic literature, the word apocalyptic literally just means unveiling or unmasking. And so, it's applicable to things that are unveiled or unmasked in the future, but it's also what God has unveiled or unmasked in the present and in the past. In a sense, God is revealing what is real. God is revealing the way that the world truly works. And so there's an aspect that's future-focused, but there's also an aspect of what God is revealing today, of what is true, what is real. He's giving us a glimpse behind the curtain. He's pulling off the veil and showing us what he sees. And with that, it's going to be a little obscure. It's going to be a little strange because while God is unveiling and unraveling and unraveling showing us these things, he doesn't show us absolutely everything. And we're going to see that as we read chapter one here that it's this weird dream of four beasts coming out of the ocean and we're told that it's these four kingdoms that will rule on earth and that's about all that it gives us. It doesn't give us really the names of who this is, doesn't give us dates, it doesn't give all these specifics because God is being kind of choosy, with what he's revealing to us. He's revealing something important and something real, but he's not revealing everything. And so that's what we're going to step into in a moment. So with that explanation, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 7. And as we've been discussing, even though this is very strange, the book of Daniel still has this overarching meaning, that even if it's going to be communicated in a different way, The big idea of the book of Daniel is that despite all appearances, God is in control and he gives us what we need to be faithful in exile. And in the book of Daniel, this is still going to be true, especially in chapter 7. And what we see in chapter 7 is that God gives us hope by showing us the big picture, by unveiling to us the big picture. So if you have your Bible ready or on, or if you can see the screens here, We're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 7, we'll go down through verse 8, and then we're going to have to pause and process what we just read for a second. So Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night I looked. And there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four beasts, each different from the others, came out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up, eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings, like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, as one does, um, there before me was another horn, a little horn, which came up among them. And the three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Pause there. So one train of thought, one view on these beasts, is that each one of these beasts represents a series of kingdoms that then came into rule in Daniel's region of the world there in the Middle East. And so the lion is Babylon, the place where where Daniel was living there. And and we have seen some of the the lion imagery, and we're going to talk about why these fit each country a little more in the podcast to go in depth there, so you can look there. But essentially the first one, Babylon is the lion. The Persian Empire that came after the Babylonians is the bear. The Greeks and the kingdom of Alexander the Great is the four-headed leopard. And then this super mega horned beast with either refers to the Roman Empire, which a lot of people think because that was the empire that was in power when Jesus came to the earth, Or some think it was the kingdom of the Syrians, which was 160 years before Jesus. And a lot think that it was the Syrians just because of kind of how bad they were and they fit the bill of some of the predictions that were here. Um, But especially with that last kingdom, that last kingdom is the one that has the implications for the future. That is one that might have happened back then but would also happen late in the future, before Jesus' return again. And so there's a lot of speculation. Okay, maybe it was Rome, maybe it was the Syrians before, but who is it going to be in the future? And so this is where we have a ton of fun and try to figure out who it is. Is it Russia, Iran, North Korea, New Zealand? Who's it going to be? It could be anyone at this point. I'm sure that's a theory out there. It could be anyone. We don't know. We don't know. But either way, one of the things that's going to be important to see here is the parallel between this chapter and chapter 2. Do you guys remember what happened in Daniel chapter 2? Right, Nebuchadnezzar was given a dream, a vision, and he also saw this train of kingdoms, so to speak. And he saw it in the form of this big statue, all made of these different precious metals. And now we're seeing essentially the same kingdoms, but all being displayed not as a statue and not as precious metals, but as beasts. And the reason is that chapter 2 was man's perspective. When man looks at the world, when man looks at these kingdoms, he looks at them and goes, wow, this is magnificent. These big, massive kingdoms, they're powerful, they're valuable, ooh, shiny kind of things. And then God looks at these kingdoms that hurt and kill and enslave and set themselves up against God and seek to fulfill their own appetites, don't seek to live the, God, the way God wants them to live, but the way they want to live. And God is not that impressed. God is not saying, yeah, you're big and shiny. God is saying, you're beasts. You are acting inhumane and like animals, not like these rulers that I set you up to be. When you do these things, God looks at these kingdoms and says, you're acting like beasts. And essentially what God is revealing to us is that we live in a world ruled by beasts we live in a world in which the suffering we see the pain and the heartache and all the things wrong are not the work of god's hands the god who is love and justice and peace it is not him causing all these things to happen but there are beasts ruling this world prowling around hurting and devouring and these beasts that seek their own appetite instead of the will of god Are prowling around the world. And when we watch all of this take place, when we see the pain and suffering in the world, our response is probably a lot like Daniel's. In verse 15, which we haven't gotten to yet, Daniel says, I was troubled by this. Because I'm sure as many of us know, when we just watch the news for a few minutes, isn't it troubling? Isn't it kind of hard to stomach turning on the news and seeing continued war in the Middle East still, or to see that COVID cases are still rising in other parts of the world when we don't even blink twice at it here, or when we have friends or family that we know that are diagnosed with cancer, or when there are murders in our own city. When we see these things happen, it's troubling, right? It should be. It's troubling, but here's the thing, and here's the thing that God is pointing out, is that this is reality. This is way things are happening, but this isn't the whole picture. This isn't the whole picture. And when we get to verse 9, picture it this way. See, what most commentators point out is that Daniel must have been seeing all of this at the same time. It wasn't like one video after another, it was all of it at the same time. And if you've ever been to like a sports bar where they have giant TVs up on the wall, they typically have one main game I know some of you have, right? <laughs> you're laughing. You probably are going here after this, right? But there's typically one game big on the main screen, and then down below, it's honestly ca- kind of hard to find a picture of these places, but then they would typically play a ton of other games down at the bottom, and so you would have like 30 games played all at the same time, and you're supposed to just pick one, I guess? I have a hard time focusing on all of those, and so I typically find the TV where there's only one. And essentially, this is kind of what Daniel was seeing. That down below, he's seeing all these beasts and these small screens. There's this leopard, there's this bear, there are these other things, and they're taking place down below. But then there's something else happening that God is trying to get his attention. God is trying to get him to look at in the big picture. He's trying to get him to see what's happening on the main screen. And this is what happens in verse 9. While all these things are taking place down below, Verse 9 is what's taking place up above. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Tens of thousands, 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. And so this is what Daniel's seeing. While at the bottom, all these crazy beasts are coming out of the ocean and doing horrible things. Up in heaven, there's this courtroom scene taking place. And the Ancient of Days, which is God, is sitting in the courtroom as the judge Watching over everything that is happening, and then verse eleven, then I continued to watch of the boastful words that the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was had been destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. and so God casts judgment, and he ends one of these beasts, and then it says in verse thirteen. So this little section here is a good picture of apocalyptic literature, because while Daniel is seeing part, he's seeing all this happen down here, he also sees this one, like a son of man, riding on clouds. And this title, like a son of man, essentially just means a human. He was a guy who looked like a dude. It wasn't a beast or it wasn't some kind of weird spiritual being, it was a human, And it looks like this guy had come out of the heavens and then had gone back up to heaven and sat on a throne and was presented before God and had a kingdom and authority over the whole world. Now, for us, living thousands of years after this and having had the Bible for a long time, uh, who do we think or who do we know that the uh, one like a son of man is? Jesus. Classic church answer, right? It's a pretty safe answer, and it's right. This one like a son of man is Jesus. He's the one pictured in this vision in Daniel chapter 7. In fact, Jesus referred to himself more than any other title or name as this one like a son of man. He referred to himself over and over as the son of man. We know that he had a lot of titles and he called himself a lot of things. Um, He was the Messiah, he was the son of God, he was the I am. But more than ever, he was alluding back to Daniel 7 and saying, I am one like a son of man. So this chapter, as strange as it was, and it still is, was very important to Jesus. And Jesus cited it and alluded to it a lot. Jesus uses this imagery all the time to kind of explain what he was doing. And Jesus quotes this passage in a very powerful way in Matthew chapter 26. He had just been arrested and he's on trial. He's in court now. And when he was arrested, the leaders of Jerusalem, they sentenced him to death. And all the leaders were there. The high priests, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're all there. And they're trying to come up with false charges against him. And the high priest is asking Jesus to defend himself and to explain what he's been teaching, to explain what he's been doing wrong, and they're hoping to kind of catch him in something. And so the high priest tells Jesus, Tell us what you've been teaching. Are you saying that you are the Messiah? And Jesus answers in Matthew 26, verse 64. He he says, you have said so. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man, there it is, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, just like in that vision, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said he has spoken blasphemy why do you need any more witnesses look now you have heard the blasphemy what do you think he is worthy of death they answered seems like kind of an overreaction when you just see Jesus's response and their response it's like you could probably keep your shirt on he's just saying he's one like the son of man right but this guy freaks out and he freaks out because Jesus was quoting Daniel 7. Jesus said, this guy, this son of man that we all know about, who sits at the right hand of God and rides the clouds, that's me. I am that person. I am that character. And by default, who does that make the rest of the people in the room? Who does that make the leaders? The beasts? Those nasty monsters Jesus is saying, that's you. You have become those beasts. Jesus says, you think that this is the courtroom where I'm being judged and where I'm going to be sentenced to death or destroyed. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. You're only saying what's happening down here. There's actually another courtroom set up, and you are the ones on trial. And you are the ones being sentenced. And it's pretty subtle, but Jesus is in a room full of Bible scholars And he knew that they would get it, and they got it, and that is why they reacted so strongly. He implies he's the human one. He's the son of man, and that he's the one who rides on the clouds, essentially claiming divinity here. And it's just very clear then who Jesus is saying the high priest and the leaders are. They've become the beasts. And for the Sanhedrin who Who knew that these beasts represented Babylon and Greece and these evil empires that came in and attacked them and killed people and destroyed them, for them to be called this, well, that was a big deal. But Jesus was saying, because you've rejected the Messiah, you have become these things. That these beasts don't have to just be this one kingdom, these beasts can be anyone who rejects the Messiah, anyone who sets themselves up against God to do these things and so for Jesus it wasn't about just naming which kingdom this would be this is about naming the human condition this is about naming what happens when we don't follow God when we seek our own appetites and we don't seek God's ways Jesus is saying yes they were specific kingdoms but also this is the human condition from his point of view people can become these beasts. And what Daniel 7, I think, makes us forced to look at is we have to look at ourselves and say, where is the beast within us? Or how are we contributing to this beastliness? Right? When we look at the world and we see like so many beasts ruling things and things are such a mess and there's so much pain and suffering, The call isn't just to say like, yeah, go get them, go get them, go get them. But the call is to look at us and say, are we contributing in any way to that? How is our beastliness contributing? You know, when when am I likely to hurt someone or take advantage of someone or act selfishly out of my own desires? You see, this passage shouldn't cause us to just obsess about when the end times will take place. It should cause us to obsess about when our beastliness might come out, when that might take place. It shouldn't cause us to be obsessed with what is Russia doing, what is China doing. We should look at ourselves and say, what are we doing? What am I doing? How am I contributing to this? And it shouldn't cause us to just be super worried about Which countries are gaining power here or there, but where is the enemy gaining ground in my life, or how am I using my power and my authority over others? The fact that the beast could be the human condition is what is unveiled here. That the one like a son of man still rules over it all, though. Now, the philosopher Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he famously wrote after spending years studying the Russian gulags and studying their prison system, he said, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Well, Jesus told us, that we are called to take up our cross and to follow him, to put to death our sinful nature. And Paul said in Galatians that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with their passions and desires. And so since we live now by the Spirit, we can keep in step with the Spirit. And so for us as followers of Jesus, Jesus offers to put that beast to death. and says, follow me, And this thing will not be inside of you. It happens every week. Why are you guys surprised? I think (laughs) like the exact same time that thing falls. (laughs) But we have a rescue from it. And Jesus is calling us to look at the big picture here and say, remember this, as you look out on the world, as it's tempting to see the beasts roaming around, remember that that's who you are without me. That's who you were until I put that to death. Until you were born again. So Daniel, he sees this all happening at the same time. The chaos on earth down here. And then Jesus coming and making everything right and killing the beasts. The thing is, uh, it doesn't really bring him peace. Um, It actually scares him. So we'll pick it up again in verse 15. He says, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit And the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of this. And so he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others, that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Daniel basically, like, went up and asked an angel who was there to interpret this. And the angel described and interpreted the dream for him. Verse 23, he gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will rise and oppress his holy people and try to change the times try to change the set times and laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times and a half a time. So, something's going to happen in the future. There's going to be kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. One of those kingdoms is going to be really bad. Oppress God's people. They're going to change laws and set times, whatever that might mean. But then, goes on to explain that this will not last forever. In verse 26. But, the court will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself that's the end. That's the story of Daniel's, I don't know, Chipotle-induced nightmares. That He had this vision of kingdom after kingdom, of things going horribly, of beasts coming out of the ocean and doing these terrible things. And and it looks bad. They're like scary lions and weird mega-horned beasts that don't really make any sense. And then God tells them, okay, with all this happening, don't get too excited. Don't get too scared. Just know... It's not going to last forever. And just know that with everything happening down here, take, take a look at what is happening up here in heaven. That while all this is happening down below, I sit in judgment over all of it. And that one day, it's all going to come to an end. And I'll come and make everything right. And they think that they have a lot of power, and they think that they're really scary, but they're nothing compared to me. And he's saying to us then as we see these things happen, don't get too high and excited and like maybe this is it, maybe we'll achieve utopia and we'll figure everything out. Don't get too low and thinking this is the end, we can't follow Jesus anymore, all is lost. He's saying none of this is fundamentally different from the way things have always been and the way things will be until I come back. There will eventually be a kingdom that will be a kingdom forever. That the one like a son of man Jesus, right, is going to rule over. And this reminds me of Psalm 2, which I would say is the closest thing to trash talk in the Bible. Psalm 2, God says this through David. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them with his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment, but blessed are all of those who take refuge in him. So that is God's message that no matter how much power I grasp and seek, that he's the one in control, and he will set everything right. And it might look bad for those judged by God as being the beasts, but for those who are on his side, who kiss his son, who accept Jesus, who take refuge in him, this justice is a good thing. This justice is a good thing, and he's the God who sits over all of it in judgment. So God is saying, look, I know that things are crazy down there. I know that things are scary and looking bad and looking worse, and the next beast just seems to get even worse. It's troubling. It really is. But I am sovereign over all of it. See the big picture. See what I'm doing up here. I'm judging it, and one day I'll reclaim it and put it all back together. And Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4, do not be anxious in anything, but in every situation, by power and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And Paul here promises a peace that doesn't make sense. And at times it still doesn't make sense to me. How could we see all the craziness down here and possibly have peace? How could we see all of this and give thanks anything. And he said, well, because you can also look up here and see what's happening on the main screen. You can see that despite all appearances, I am in control, that I will set everything right, and I'm giving you what you need to be faithful. I'm giving you the big picture here. And this is the only way that I think that we can see the world, that we can see the chaos around us, that we can see the beast in us and the beasts out there and have peace. Is to know that he's still in control. To know that it's not forever. To know that we have hope and refuge in him. And so, if you look out at the world and you're freaking out a little, you probably, you probably should be. That's, I think, the appropriate response. Because when you're seeing all of this, all the pain, all the suffering... That's the appropriate response, but there's also a way that we can have peace that doesn't make sense, and that's that we are able to see something that no one else sees, the big picture of what's happening on the main screen, to see God's feelings towards all of this. He's not happy. He's sitting in judgment, and he's going to do something about it, and we can see what's truly real in that, and that's how we have this peace not just focusing on this, but being able to see what's up here in the big picture. Remembering the God who sits in court over all of it and his posture there. Now, Paul David Tripp, he wrote in a devotional, kind of a long little section here, but it's been very encouraging to me. He said, there simply is no panic in heaven. God is never anxious There is no confusion in the Trinity of God. He never wrings his hands and wishes he had made a better choice. God never worries about what is going to happen next, nor stresses over how things are going to turn out. God is never surprised or caught off guard. He is never in a situation that overwhelms him. God never feels needy or unprepared. God never regrets that he did or did not do, or that he ever fails at a task. He never makes promises he cannot keep, never forgets what he said or wants to do next. God never contradicts himself or fails to be exact. He is all-powerful, absolutely perfect in every way, faithful to every word, sovereign over all that is, the definition of love. He is righteous, just, tender, and patient all at the same time. He is not dismayed or distracted by our panic and our questions. No, the sovereign move of his grace marches on. So this all down here, it's crazy. It's crazy out there. It really is. But that doesn't change God's posture. It doesn't make him nervous because he knows that his dominion will be over all of it. And he invites us to look at him and his posture in this situation and to gain peace from that. To see the one like a son of man who came for us. And it's from that point that we have peace, seeing this big picture. So Daniel chapter 7 was written to give us hope. It was written to give us hope. It was written in a really weird way. And it gives us hope in a really strange way. Um, if, If someone in your life who you feel like needs a message of hope, maybe don't just tell them about your dreams or your nightmares. I don't know how that will quite work out, but maybe you could tell them about Daniel's. (laughs) Maybe you could tell them that when the beasts are roaming the earth, that there's a God who sits in heaven judging it all. And that one day, he's going to come, crush those beasts, and everything will be put back together. And you know, during this time, I'm sure Daniel... Daniel is just sitting in Babylon, wondering, you know, when am I going to get to go home? He was in exile. He was supposed to be living in Jerusalem, which had been leveled at the time. And now he's living and working for the Babylonian government. He's an old man at this time, probably wondering, when is all this going to end? And then God gives him this vision that it's not going to last forever. And that gave him hope. He was still a little troubled by it. Probably had a hard time sleeping, but it gave him hope. And it can give us hope in the same way. It can give us hope in the same way. That God has promised to judge it all and to be faithful to us. That's the vision. That he will bring justice and destroy these beasts. So with that, would you bow your heads and pray with me? Well, Father God, um, we just thank you uh, for your Holy Spirit illuminating the word for us. We just thank you that you show us so much. God, we commit to trusting you even when it doesn't make sense, but we just thank you for being a God who who cares that things do make sense for us, and that does so much to reveal what is going on in the world, what has happened in history, what will happen in the future. God, we just thank you for for blessing us in that way, for giving us this vision and this, this dream for giving that to a guy so many years ago that still today we can look at it and find hope. That still today we can see you in it. And as the beasts would roam wild in our world today, as we see the chaos happening in the screens down below, um, would you just lift our eyes up to you? Would you just remind us this next week of your posture in heaven, that you are not in a panic, that you are still in control? Remind us that even if it doesn't look that way, that we can see the big picture and that through faith we can trust that one day you will set it all right. Would you give us this hope, God? Would you show us that in a mighty way ways? Would your spirit be on Common Ground Church to be able to see what is truly happening in the world, what is more real um, than what it looks like on the surface? So Jesus, thank you for your word. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.